Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we talk about stories which we think are important but are somewhat underreported in the media. And I am delighted to be joined by two excellent guests. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how this podcast is going to go because we're on quite different wings of the political spectrum. First of all, we have John McTernan, political strategist and commentator, political secretary to Tony Blair and very much of that wing of the Labour Party. And we have Matt Zarb-Cousins, former spokesman of Jeremy Corbyn, safe to say the right at the other end of the political spectrum in terms of Labour politics. Gentlemen, welcome. Welcome, great to be here. Great to be here, yeah. What's it like being in the same room? We've done it before. We have actually done a podcast before. Uh, Oh, was there security? (laughs) There was geniality, actually. There was actually. No, I mean, look, this is is broad church stuff. But I think we want want a little bit of confrontation and antagonism, don't we? Absolutely. Well, we're all about diverse opinions here at Unheard. That's the whole point of it. So look, um, John, I'm going to come straight to you for your uh, under-reported story, something brilliant story, incredibly important issue. So it's been reported, uh, underreported in my view, that Mother Care are going to close some stores, about 50 stores uh, across the country. And they're actually negotiating with their landlords to reduce the rent for the other stores so they can stay in business. Now, it might be a simple story of in capitalism, you know, some, some uh, stores crash and others fl- thrive and we should you know, just get things just go away. The British Retail Consortium reckon, reckon that about a million jobs in retail are going to go uh, in the coming years. And that should be a huge political story. There should be debates in the House of Commons. There should be rallies. There should be inquiries. There should be commissions. There should be demands. It's all silent. And the reason it's all silent is I think there's kind of three things. People think of retail, think it's not a real job. Uh, they think it's a part-time job. And above all else, they think it's women's work. Yeah. So if there's a million jobs are going to go in manufacturing over the next uh, five to ten years, there'd be a lot being said about this politically. A million jobs in retail, it's going to reshape our high streets, reshape our communities. It would be devastating. It's bigger than the pit closures, bigger than steel closures. Uh, so we should be thinking about this, talking about it and doing something about it. Um, the, the issue of the value of women's work is something that certainly, you know, campaigners such as my, myself, you know, lots of other um, feminist groups have been pushing for for a long time. How do you change the narrative in, in terms of how we value different types of work? I mean, in fact, the genesis of a lot of the, the, the modern equal pay mm. claims were, were about mm. that. How, how do you change the narrative on that politically? I think uh, one thing is leadership, and so the leadership of of Harriet Harman on this issue has been important politically. Equally, having women in senior positions. Uh, a lot of companies, FTSE 100 companies, have now got women uh, in the leadership. You need more women in leadership, more women in visible leadership. And those women need to take the issue seriously. And I think you've touched on a, a cultural issue, which is why do people think some work is women's work and some work is men's work? Why are some jobs real jobs and some jobs not, not, not real jobs? Only 13% of our economy is manufacturing. And yet, in, in the minds of the public, Hitting metal with metal is a real job, whereas caring for somebody uh, in an old people's home or caring for somebody with dementia isn't a real job. Yeah. Now, they, they both have equal importance economically because they produce things. They, they have equal value socially. And partly it's the way we talk about work and the way we think about work. And one of the things, you know, we obsess 
uh, about very small parts of the economy. The amount of you know, the amount of attention given to agriculture, two percent of our economy, compared to retail, which is a massive part of our economy. And like you say, as well, the, the nostalgia. You know, the the, mm. the coal mines yeah. loom large in our um, rhetoric now. We have a, a huge nostalgia for those jobs lost, understandably. But women's work is 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 significantly undervalued. And one of the things that I always find very frustrating, and I know a lot of other feminist economic, uh, you know, economists feel the same way. Is when we talk about infrastructure, we talk about roads, yeah. we talk about railways, we talk about heavy things. Mm. We don't think about childcare. We don't think yeah. about care of um, elderly relatives, and all of that is social infrastructure that helps people get to work and be productive. Um, Matt, what what are your what are your thoughts on this? I think it is gendered to a large extent. Uh, I think that is a very good point, uh, but I do think as well. It's a perception that we now have as a society. Look, you, when you say we talk about nostalgia for the, the coal mines and uh, in, working uh, in manufacturing and, and those kind of jobs, it was because you could go and go to work in in those places and you could stay there for your entire career and you could afford a house and feed your family and live a, a decent life by working in those jobs that were ostensibly semi-skilled blue-collar jobs. And now what we have is a situation where if you don't Go to university, go and work in the city, go and work in a high-skilled job. You're seen as not important, not an important part of the economy. I think that's more of the problem. It's not that. Uh, it's not necessarily that you know people think manufacturing has to be saved. They, they associate manufacturing jobs now, places like Rolls-Royce, with with more skilled work. Um, the, the the sad reality is. In these jobs, workers' rights have been eroded over some time. Over, it's, it's been a, a war of attrition against workers. They used to. I, I can speak um, with some authority on the betting industry because that's been the focus of my campaigning. But it used to be the case that, for example, if you were a betting shop manager, you would be on forty, forty-five thousand pounds a year. And what they've done is they've stripped out all of those people, and now everyone who's working in the betting industry is working on minimum wage. And I think that there's a, a feeling that. If we lose these minimum wage jobs, it isn't the end of the world. So I think there's two aspects of this. It's And I guess automation plays a role in that as well. Absolutely, yeah. I think there's two aspects of it, really. It's fun- fundamentally, uh, the, the kind of snobbery of, well, you know, everyone's got a chance to go to university and better themselves, and therefore we shouldn't have to worry about the people at the bottom, which is ridiculous. Um, and then that plays into this justification that you can erode these people's rights. And then when these companies go under and these jobs are lost, as John says, it's right. It's, it's, it's not seen as that important. And, and that shouldn't be the case. But I think there's a, a structural issue here that is about uh, demand in the economy having been completely decimated since the, t- the financial crisis. People aren't spending money on the high street. They're buying online because it's cheaper. They're buying from places like Amazon or they're going to shopping centres out of town. And so, there's, there's there's a high street element here as but well. But on that, and I want to come to both of you on mm. this, this crisis on the high street, the mm. decline of the high street, is not a new thing. This has been something that's been going on for quite a long time. It's particularly acute outside London. Um, I was doing some campaigning outside London. There isn't a high street left in a lot of places, not a pub. There's just lots of betting shops and charity shops. You know, they don't even have a, a you know a decent sort of department store or or things like that. How do you stop this terminal decline of the high street when, as Matt says, you know, online shopping is very popular? How can you turn that round, or or is that gone? Have we lost the high street now? No, you can see successful high streets and unsuccessful high streets when you go around the country. Just you can see successful, thriving towns and unsuccessful towns. And the, the the lesson above all else is direct, clever and sensitive management 
is successful and a lack of leadership isn't. Um, you can have a race to the bottom in, uh, in terms of conditions, as Matt was describing, but you can actually have... Um, it's where government comes in. It's actually where local government should come in. It's where mayors should come in, which is if and you, what are you the can types shrink, of you can, should be, one thing you can do, you can, you can consolidate um, uh, high streets so that some, you know, some of them should be closed down and the, and the shops turn into housing. Uh, but equally, government facilities should be could be put placed into the middle, uh, like a job centre or mm-hmm. uh, government offices can be put into the middle, like a council office. So social can be in the services. Middle. So you can you mix you you create things where there are, where there's a footfall and you but you basically you decommission some shops because there's two, there's the streets near me where um, uh, which are no longer shopping streets because we don't have small shops anymore. But you have to actively manage it. And I think it goes to, there's a thing which, again, Matt touched on, which is one of the reasons why nobody thinks about uh, service industries and retailers as real jobs is nobody looks at the skills involved in them and the management skills and the hierarchy and the advancement you can get within them. A lot of these things are about recognition. They're about planning. They're about sector skills councils, which sound really, really boring, but they're really important. And in a, in a funny kind of way, what we're seeing is a return to people believing correctly there's a much bigger role for government uh, than the Tory party, whether under Theresa May or under uh, Cameron Osborne, actually really believe there should be. They've shrunk the state and they shrink the capacities of the state. And by shrinking it, you stop councils being able to plan for uh, town centre development or for sensitive usage of, of, of taking some shops out and some shops in. And it's that leadership role and function which mayors are bringing back in, which I think is one of the best things about mayors, whether the Tory mayor of Birmingham or the, the Labour mayor of Liverpool or Manchester. So I think it's that, it's, but it's it's believing that something not just should be done, but things can be done. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, look, I think this is a very important uh, topic for us uh, at Unheard to keep a watch on, and it will be interesting to see if these metro mayors can can start swinging things round. Matt, um, I'd like to come to you now for your um, underreported story, and you're talking about a uh, a big employment rights <coughs> campaign. Yes, uh, and I think this is uh, something that really has the capacity to affect everyone particularly uh, working in retail I mean at the end of the end of 2016 uh, the independent workers union of Great Britain applied to win collective bargaining rights for delivery riders delivery obviously delivers food from restaurants to people's homes um, and this would this was trying to make uh, these workers a category of self-employment known as limb workers which would grant them basic rights such as minimum wage and holiday pay and three weeks before the case was heard the uh, delivery management inserted a new substitution clause in the contracts granting riders the right to allow anyone else to do their job in their place so you could subcontract your own job so uh, in order for the rider to do this they would have to conduct a criminal record check an immigration check and comply with other legislation for example determine that this person that they want to subcontract their work out to had not been trafficked. Mm. So it's completely uh, not workable, really. In, in reality, it's completely unfeasible. Um, but what it meant was delivery were able to say these people are self-employed contractors, these workers. They're not, they don't deserve or they shouldn't be entitled to basic, basic rights. Um, delivery drivers used to get training by a recruitment assessor, uh, and it's suspected that they've done away with that because it would make them look like workers, make these contractors look like workers. Uh, and most delivery riders are paid per drop, per drop. So they pay for their own equipment and service their own bikes. Um, if it's a quiet time of day, it can mean clocking into work on the app, waiting around and being paid nothing. Each worker is assigned a zone. A city like London is divided into dozens of zones, uh, which they make deliveries in. But the riders apparently uh, say that the, the zones are constantly being expanded in size. 
It takes longer to make deliveries, meaning they earn less money. Um, so the workers' uh, union now is raising money for their appeal to the High Court. And what's the specific ask? What is the specific ask of the of the campaign? That they should be considered employees and therefore have rights, like like any other employee. And the real danger of them not winning is that there's no reason now, I don't think, for other retail industries or retail sectors to take on this model of employment. So just imagine a, a coffee a coffee chain or a clothing store, let's like say, for example, Topshop, and workers log into their Topshop app and then they have to join a queue to work. Uh, it's quite an attractive proposition for companies. They don't so have to pay for HR. So you feel this is a sort of a, a, kind of a, a watermark movement sort of thing and if, if, if they don't win this, this could change the entire you know model of, of working. Well, in a lot of these... Retail so John, what's your take on on this? It kind of loops into what we were talking about before, actually, with the with with retail as well. I think the problem uh, of Matt's position is the problem of uh, a lot of uh, discussion on the left about the new forms of working that are available for people. Is it is fundamentally miserableist and it fundamentally uh, ignores the fact that people actually want to work. They want to work zero hours contracts. They want to work flexibly. They want to be self employed. They want to opt into this, this work when they can get it on their app and when they don't want it, they don't want to do it. Uber drivers, delivery uh, uh, riders and drivers, um, Uber Eats drivers, um, all these people um, actually are having flexible ways to earn extra money. Um, and you can't, the only consequence of imposing employment rights on them will be to destroy, to destroy the jobs. Um, and the great thing about the bipartisan uh, success of, of British employment has been deregulating uh, substantially, which creates new jobs. There are workers' rights being building alongside that, but the flexible labour market is flexible for a reason, and it's good for workers and it's good for employers. And this is actually delivery is good for consumers. So it's kind of uh, I kind of fundamentally think that the consequence of of what Matt would have would be people not having jobs and having less money, which I don't think do you, is actually what, what do you wants. think about that, Matt? What's your, what do you see back to well, John? I think John John would be the first to say that that one of Tony Blair's finest achievements was introducing the minimum wage, and I think we can all get behind that. Now, if there's ways of undermining that or undercutting the minimum mm. wage uh, in the name of job creation, which mm. let's be honest, look, if you listen to the people that are actually working in these jobs, the Uber drivers, if you listen to the delivery <clears> workers, they want basic rights. They're not saying we don't want flexible work of course everyone wants flexible work but what they're saying is give us the basic rights make guarantee us the minimum wage and if we if we go go down this path where we allow uh workers rights to be undercut in the name of you know expanding job creation when the jobs aren't paying properly they're not they're not providing a, a standard of living to the people working in them then you end up just feeding this ridiculous conservative government narrative about record numbers of people being in work. Well, if they work one hour a week, it's not really meaningful, is it? So, Matt, on sort of John's point about choice, I mean, some people I know and I have spoken to have said, I quite like the flexibility that, you know, let's say Uber gives me. I'm studying, I can do some work at night. I spoke spoke to a Muslim cab driver actually last night who said, Uber's great when you're in Ramadan because you can sleep during the day and you can you can work at, at night, which you can't really do in many many other jobs. What do you say to them in terms of they quite like the flexibility that they get? I think that, that there are obviously benefits to it, but I think that the costs outweigh the benefits. And look, if there is a, a way of ensuring that if someone wants to opt in to that kind of flexible working, then 
forego their minimum wage or forego their rights, then they should be entitled to do that. Like I'm personally, I'm self-employed. I like being self-employed. It means I can do lots of different things. You get to come on podcasts And I get to come on podcasts. But I choose that, right? I could, if I wanted to, I could work as PAYE, could work as an employee and have rights and have holiday pay. But I I choose not to do that. And the problem we've got now is we've got this economy, which is creating a lot of low low skilled, it's called low skilled work. And it's not paying properly mm. because but why do you, why do you the thing is why do you deny that choice and that agency to other people you've chosen to be self-employed uber drivers choose to be self-employed um choice and agency control of your own destiny is one of the the things that the labor movement has always existed for um and that um it's quite condescending for you that your choice is good choice because you're well informed and these people's choice isn't real choice that's like, not what i'm saying because it's not a choice i'm trying to get underneath what you're no, saying no no but it's, it's 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 not it's not a choice if you if you can't be PAYE, yeah. if you're not, but, if you're not able to be like employed with rights, that's not a choice. That's being being forced to be self-employed. But John, just to come back on mm. on your argument, mm. so your argument about you know deregulation of yeah. employ, employ, employment rights has created lots of good things. I mean, we we often speak to James Bloodworth on this mm-hmm. um, podcast. He writes for for Unheard. His book um, Higher talks about you know life mm. in low-paid yeah. Britain. And it's it's pretty grim, you know. It's not the it's not the kind of thing that that, that sort of Tony Blair or anybody would have ever sort of wanted. Very very uh, long hours, very punitive conditions, um, a real erosion of a basic dignity at work in a lot of these um, you know big sort of industrial warehouses now. What, what's your take on that? I mean, surely you can't think that that is all great. That's not the sort of vision that us you know as kind of labory people would would want. James James is a, is a great writer, uh, a great journalist. Um, the workers who work in Amazon or uh, in, in other in, in other areas where he where he's documented, they do have a whole set of rights, minimum rights. Uh, they've got the minimum wage. They've got um, a whole, they've got the right to pay bank holidays. They've got a whole set of rights, which are there, which are a platform for them. So the the issue we're talking about here is self-employed versus employed people. Now, self-employed people are but, the no, largest. No, I get, I get that. I just want the to largest, talk about, are the, are the, but I think there is a bleed over because what what Matt is saying is that you could sort of change the model for full employment to much more of a gig economy. <clears throat> type thing and it looks like some of the employment practices being eroded so much that might not be a, a, a crazy thing to think so the hmrc are really tough on fake self-employment so i don't believe that the i don't believe matt's idea that top shop could have all the shop assistants being um self-employed it wouldn't pass the hmrc tests for self-employment um the thing about the bottom end of the labor market is um one you have to regulate two you have to enforce there's no evidence the current government want to do any enforcement at all. Yep, I think uh, we can all agree bottom, on that. Bottom, yeah. The bottom yeah. level of the labour market. Yeah. Uh, nor do they want to give additional rights to those workers. Th- those workers need trade union representation. I myself uh, would hope the next Labour government uh, bring in far greater access for, of unions to workplaces, yep. the right for collective bargaining. That's definitely the thing. The other danger is to think that the jobs that people are in today are the jobs they'll always have. And we, we never really focus on that enough. My first job was in St. Cuthbert's Co-op in Edinburgh stacking shelves. Um, if you, if everybody always stayed in the first job they had, we'd be in a very bad, be in a very bad way. And so, part of the progressive agenda is for progression. It's not that you should. It's not. It's that your low-paid job, your first job, shouldn't be your last job. That shouldn't be the height of your aspirations. It goes back to the retail thing about skills. It goes back to everybody needs to be able to to move on and move on and progress. Um, and how you how you have a situation where 
there are you know, apprenticeships with apprenticeships with the same academic rigor as a degree where people choose in those ways. It's a whole different set of things of talking about uh, working in ways. But if you focus merely on the bottom end of the labor market, the thing is the bottom end of the labor market is always going to be low paid, difficult, unstable because the nature of the, the nature of the employment. Do we want people to have no jobs or those jobs? And the answer is actually work is better than no work. Matt, what do you say to that? You know, are, are we a bit too miserablist on the left when it comes to this? Should we talk about work in a more aspirational, sort of um, progressive way, literally, in, you know, in the sense of being able to sort of move on and up? I think that it was very interesting, actually, to see the Sunday Times rich list last week because it made a big point about 20 of the top 50. None of us were on it, but just, yeah. to, just no, to clarify. But 20 of the top 50 being self-made, mm. as if this, you know, justifies increasing, ever-increasing inequality that some people have been able to, you know, uh, do well and, uh, you know, make, us, make, make huge amounts of money off the backs of, uh, of, of paying workers, not as much as workers used to be paid, right? Let's, let's, be, let's be realistic about it. Last 10 years, wages have stagnated, they've gone down. Anyway, look, I think it's, um, of course, you want to try and create as many high-skilled, well-paid jobs as you can in an economy. But I think the... Uh, it's it's rich to talk about uh, us being miserableist, particularly coming from uh, uh, Blairite. Uh, Just say, fire, get it out, uh, get it out, Blair, don't Blairite, hold back. Uh, a Blairite firebrand like John, uh, because John, as I said, as I said earlier, you know, John talks talked a lot. About, Blairites talk a lot about the minimum wage, and and if you talk about the minimum wage, it becomes a target wage. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be a minimum wage. But what we failed to do, and I think the erosion of trade unionism within these workplaces has contributed to it as well, so I welcome what John said about that, is talk about the rungs above it. And there has not been enough to work done in progression within these companies. Because I'm sorry, like, I know you're saying individuals should move jobs and, make, you know, try and get better wages somewhere else or whatever. But really, if someone works in a job like that, it needs to it needs to pay it needs to give them a living wage at least the living, the living wage is a nonsense idea it's the most nonsense idea of, of modern decades um, it really is and it goes back to an underpinning thing that you talked about in, in why is it which such is, a nonsense idea because I mean it's surely it's a continuation of the national minimum wage which is one of Blair's greatest achievements because the because it is absolutely clear that you need um, that, that underpinning the notion of a living wage, is the patriarchal fiction of a family wage, and it's the it's the sentimental looking back to when a, when a man could go to work and he have enough money for his wife and for his children and to buy a house on his wage. People, where we have poverty, you cannot solve poverty most by saying let's raise every wage. If we raised all wages um, to the level that people want, you destroy jobs. That's what you simply do. It's happening at the well, moment. I mean, Living I think wages we'll destroying to... jobs. You have to target with tax credits. You have to target. That's where you, ha you have to give people support to look after themselves and their families. I mean, interestingly, and we have to wrap the section up. Interestingly, that's exactly the argument that was used against you when you wanted to bring in the national minimum wage. How times have changed. But I think what we can agree on is um, enforcement of whatever minimum wage it is, whether it's a minimum wage or a living wage. A stronger representation for workers at rights. I think a modernising trade union uh, movement is exactly what is 
required now. And I think one thing that probably you two could mm. agree on <laughs> is more training skills and progression for people yeah. in their kind of careers. Hooray! Peace in our time. <laughs> <laughs> a broad church I in really our time. Do. I mean, coffee Anna and eat your heart out, yeah. basically. <laughs> right, so we are now going to do uh, heroes and villains of the week. Uh, I'm going to start with you, John, your hero of the week. Uh, my hero is the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, John Burko, um, who day in, day out, week in, week out, is actually defending the result of the last general election. Um, last general election, uh, Tories had a majority going into it. They came out as a minority government. They're acting as though they have got a majority. They're acting as though they've got a mandate for what they do. And the one person who keeps them under more scrutiny than any individual other person in the House of Commons is the Speaker, who forces uh, urgent questions, who forces uh, who forces them to debate topics they don't want to talk. And the most recent uh, row about whether he was rude about Andrea Leadsom or not pivots on the fact that basically for the third time in a row, the government had tabled a government statement, which is government business, during an opposition day debate, and not just any opposition day debate, so opposition time, which is precious, one on Grenfell Tower. And that is at that, no wonder he was angry, but he was angry on behalf of of the Grenfell Tower survivors and the victims. He was angry on behalf of the opposition who need time to hold uh, the government to account. And so if we have a meaningful vote on Brexit, it will be because of all of the work which John Burke has done as Speaker to put the power back in the hands of ordinary MPs in Parliament. Let's hope they use it wisely. But he's my, he's, he's my hero of this week and many other weeks in Parliament because he's standing up for ordinary MPs well, who I, are actually voted there by, by, the, by the public. I have to say, as somebody who's worked around Westminster for a long time, I think he's done more to actually strengthen Parliament as an institution. I remember back in the day, um, MPs would make uh, announcements to the media way before they'd come yeah, to, to Parliament. He lets a lot of backbench business in. So yeah. I, I would absolutely agree with you. Do you think that um, when it comes to that final vote, Matt, um, what you know, someone who's very close to Corbyn, how do you think Corbyn's going to vote with the Conservatives at the well, end I mean, on that on that on that, <laughs> on that Brexit vote? What would you do if you're advising Corbyn now? Depends what they what deal they come back with. As as I've said for a while, actually, you know, it's we're not negotiating. We don't know what they're going to yeah. come back with. So you, you you know, I think that the strategy, if that's what you want to call it, or the approach is probably a better word, uh, is is the right one. Um, I agree. Uh, and it, look, uh, it might be the case that by the time we get to October, when they come back with a deal, uh, public opinion will have shifted. There might be a case that okay, if, if you're going to offer the public the choice between. Um, EEA, be a rule taker, you know, and lots of conditions and obviously an economic impact, tangible economic mm. impact and all that kind of stuff, then it might be the case that the public wants a vote on the deal. Mm. And then you can make that case, but I think now will be premature. Um, okay. in, in fact, if anything, it's probably done more harm than good to make that case now. Do you know what I think <laughs> is so spectacularly interesting about where we've ended up on this kind of Corbyn Brexit thing? He's actually executed a level of genius triangulation that even John McTernan would have been proud of back it, in the day. <laughs> I mean, that just makes you blush in terms of... Right, Matt, your yeah. villain of the week. My villain of the week is uh, Philip Davis, and I hope you're listening, Philip. Um, it, uh, look, the government was very brave last week in uh, looking at the evidence on fixed odds betting terminals and actually coming down on the right side, the ro- you know, we come to the right decision... Can you just explain what that decision was? Sorry, that decision last week was uh, reducing the maximum stake on machines in betting shops from £100 to £2 a spin, which is an evidence-based decision. Um, And Philip Davis uh, 
railed against the government, having been taken to Cheltenham and been taken on lavish trips to the races and uh, events with the bookmakers. And there is a a story that apparently he's in a relationship with Esther McVeigh and Esther McVeigh tried to put the brakes on the government announcing uh, the the result of the gambling review. Uh, and there is apparently going to be some some more developments that come Can out. Can I of just that. stop you in that? Is it? Is it, sorry, I just want to stop you there. I, I'm I'm not a massive fan of Vesta McVeigh, but I don't see what that has. She might have had that decision all by herself. It's possible for a woman to have an independent thought, regardless well, of who she may share her bed with. Absolutely. Uh, however, uh, she had been on these I mean, trips to the races with Philip. Yeah, but it's possible she was also on the, those trips because she's a senior politician herself, probably with those views. I mean, she's pretty right wing. Mm. I mean, if we start going down the track of picking out every single woman and who they're going out with in politics, my goodness, we are off to the wacky races on on that one, Matt. I'm just. You're not my I, villain I'm, of the week. I, I'm, I, no, no, no. Wait, I'm, I don't don't misunderstand. misunderstand don't misunderstand what I've said. I, I'm saying that that was reported that she put the brakes on <clears> the announcement <throat> in the press. And do, she is do in a relationship with Philip Davis. Do you believe everything you read in the press mm-hmm. when it comes to I'm just people saying, on the I'm left? I'm saying what's been report, reported. That's You've been I'm... rumbled, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a chair's prerogative. I'm striking out. You're, you're now villain of the week here on her. Bang to right. But I'm picking my villain of the week now very, very quickly. That's him. Um, which is... Um, I want to talk about the Irish referendum on oh, abortion yeah. very quickly. And my villain of the week is the, the hordes of... Um, right-wing campaigners from America who are flooding in to try and influence this um, vote. It's an absolutely historic vote to uh, hopefully repeal uh, the Eighth Amendment. That's certainly my view. And I think it's such a personal and and huge decision for the Irish people. It it very much upsets me that sort of democracy is, is trying to be Subverted by, by by hordes of people, there's a there's a lot of question about sort of a lot of money coming in from the alt right in America to to, to fund very provocative, um, visceral uh, posters and campaigning against people who want to to repeal the the Eighth Amendment. So, mm. they are my villain of the week. John, what do you think about this? I always thought the abortion campaign. Uh in Ireland was going to be difficult. Um, the Catholic Church have no right to speak on any issue of morality, personal uh, or collective morality in, in Ireland, uh, given what given, given what's come out about them and their, and their treatment of, uh, of children. Um, but I always thought this was going to be a hard one to win because, in a really, put it really crudely, gay marriage is a big sell because men benefit from it. Abortion's a really yeah. hard sell in a patriarchal culture because women benefit from it. And so what we see is instant. We see a culture war being uh, executed by the alt-right. The leadership of the alt-right are men. They like the patriarchy. They like women in the position that they're in. Abortion rights are always going to be hard to win for women because they're, they're rights for women. They're yeah. not rights for men. Well, the one thing that I was absolutely shocked about... Um, Abortion is still, I think, one of the only medical procedures which is t- it, it's captured under the criminal law mm. in this country mm. as well. And we like mm. to give it the big one on feminism and rights for women in this country. We forget Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, <laughs> and we have basically done a deal with the DUP yeah. that says, yes, you know, you can, you know, we're happy to have your support and all these things, but we're not going to even get involved with rights for women on abortion. So, I mean, you can Absolutely. pretty much tell my view. Matt, your view quickly on this. On abortion, in yeah, this the campaign and and the, the the situation in Ireland with the with the referendum. Well, I hope it, I hope it's repealed. I mean, I've, you know, it, 
it would I think what we need to do here uh, I'd like to see a bit more solidarity from the Labour leadership uh, with some of the comrades in Ireland um, particularly Northern Ireland particularly you know Northern we have our Labour Party yeah. in Northern Ireland which Total. we which we sometimes almost forget about that we have our Labour Party, our sister yeah. party in Ireland. Yeah. And, and I, I agree, I think we should be doing much more um, as a party and as the left to, to talk about these issues uh, in, in Northern Ireland. Well, listen, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to my two guests, John McTernan and Matt Zarb-Cousins, for this very interesting and spirited debate on Unheard. I um, hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Do listen to us next week. I've been Aisha Hazarika. 